Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We've got Helen Thompson back with us this week. Lots to catch up on with Helen. Well, in the interest of making sure I was wide awake this morning, I did not go and watch West Ham last night, so I spent the evening hitting refresh, and they won. <clears throat> I don't watch TV, live TV. <laughs> mm. Cheery enough for you. <laughs> I just can't bear it. Really? It's too stupid. And also, I'm delighted Chris Clark is with us, Professor of History here in Cambridge, best-selling historian of Germany, and also a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. Yeah, You've been spoiled by German television. No, it's, it's, by being it's, a star no, of German I, I, television, I your standards are so high. Are you not shocked when you Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon, talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. We talked to you a few months ago about the German elections, which were then a bit of a way off. They're now five days away. Back then, we speculated about possible surprises that might be coming. We talked about the Schultz bubble. Well, that bubble has burst. And Germany now has this eerie quality in a world of chaos where its democracy just seems uncannily stable. Nothing has changed. I think if this time next week we're talking about Angela Merkel having lost, it would be the biggest surprise of all. I think it would put the other ones in the shade just because no poll has even hinted at it. We're going to talk about why Germany is so stable and really whether that's true because I suspect there's quite a lot of paddling going on under the surface. So maybe as a way into this, The Economist wrote about a survey that was done very recently asking voters across Europe whether they self-described as centrist. That's a mythical centre ground. And only 50% of French voters called themselves centrist, but 80% of German voters described themselves as centrist. But then if you look at German politics, given there are so many parties, and we have Die Linke on the left, we have the Greens, we have the Alternative for Deutschland party, where is this this centre that they all congregate around? Well, I think the centre still is strong and still holding in Germany. I mean, if you think of it, the Greens are effectively a centrist party. They're also more conservative than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, right. And they have moved, haven't they? Because they, they were have. more radical. Yes. And if you, they were more radical. They're now much less radical, much closer to the centre. And if you think of the four main splinter parties, the Greens, the Liberals, the far left, known as Die Linke, and the far right, known as Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD, then really the Liberals and the, the Greens are part of the centre. That's about 20%. And it's only that remaining 20%, the far left and the far right, who really aren't in the centre. So I think the the economist is roughly right. About 80% of Germans want to be somewhere in the centre, whether they're green, liberal, CSU, CDU, or social democratic. And does that mean that whatever comes out of this election, the alliance that governs Germany will be a centrist alliance? Are those two, for want of a better word, more extreme parties beyond the pale for government in Germany? Yes. I mean, so far, they have been beyond the pale for government. Things will change. It all depends on how the results pan out in the coming elections. If, for example, uh, a coalition were formed with the SPD 
and at the same time, you know, there are lots of variables, at the same time the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party, were to be the strongest of the splinter groups, um, with perhaps 12% of the votes, which is perfectly possible given what the polls are predicting, then the AFD would be, under German law, the leader of the opposition, the leading opposition party. And that would give it a special prominence in Germany's political life. It would, for example, give them the right to to be the first to criticize anything the government says uh, in Parliament. It would give them access to key committees. They would be able to put put up the chairperson of the Haushaltsausschuss, the budget committee, the most important committee in the Bundestag. So, you know, things could change a lot beneath the cover of this sort of apparently centrist stability. And, and is there a possibility, given that scenario, that that would disincentivize the CDU from forming another majority coalition with the SPD in that... I would imagine that's not a look that Germany wants, not least for the outside world, to have the AFD with this kind of constitutional status as the official opposition in Germany. Might that be an incentive for creating some other kind of coalition and yes. allowing the SPD to be the official opposition? Yes, there are lots of incentives for thinking beyond the grand coalition between the Social Democrats and the CDU-CSU union. Not just that the CDU is likely to see problems with a sort of you know elevation of the stages of the, of the AFD, if things turn out as I'm suggesting they might, but also because the SPD is unlikely to be very interested in the coalition. Martin Schulz just last weekend told the Spiegel magazine that uh, he planned before he entered the coalition to ask the SPD to ask his party whether they wanted to do that. And it's quite likely that the answer will be no, because the SPD, although the SPD had a good ride in this coalition, they made a very good contribution to it. They had several very distinguished ministers, for example, who got a lot of uh, airspace in Germany during the period of the coalition. Despite all of that, and despite the fact that they got two key policy demands, a minimum wage and also the demand that people be entitled to be pensioned off after 40 years of work, something they've been calling for for a while. So they got basically what they wanted out of that coalition. There's a problem with coalitions that, you know, you can squeeze a certain amount of concessions and compromises out of them, but then there comes a point where, you know, the fruit is dry. And I think there's a danger that the SPD will see it that way. They've also been punished quite hard by the electorate, if the polls are to be believed, for being in a coalition, just as the Liberal Democrats were in, in this country. And so I think the SPD may be ambivalent, the CDU may be ambivalent for the reasons you mentioned, and that project of a, of a red-black coalition is, is fraught with problems. An alternative, of course, would be the so-called Jamaica option. This is the green-yellow-black coalition. In other words, the current CDU, who from Merkel, will still be the Chancellor. That is, I think, virtually certain. But she may go into a coalition with the Greens and the Liberals. That would create the sort of Jamaican coalition, so-called because of the colours of the Jamaican flag. It's not really Jamaican in any other way. It's not Jamaican in any other respect, except for the colours of the parties. Yeah, but the the problem with Jamaica is, of course, that the the Liberals are even more difficult partners for the CDU at the moment, or likely to be, than the SPD. And there's a further problem as well, and that is that the Liberals don't even have, the FDP doesn't even have a presence in the national Bundestag, the national parliament right now, because they didn't make the 5% hurdle last time. And that means they haven't got anybody, they haven't got a cohort of people who are experienced in national politics, for example, to put into the business of running the two ministries they're likely to have if they get into a coalition partnership. Traditionally, they get the foreign ministry under that arrangement. Exactly. But, but who's, who's going to do that? You know, and Christian Lindner, their leader, is, is also inexperienced in national politics. So that option, too, is fraught with difficulty. There are no easy outcomes in this scenario. I do think, though, that there's more possibility of this than I thought a few months ago, because there is this coalition in place in Schleswig-Holstein, I think, after the elections in May 
there. And I think if you listen to what Linda's saying, he's saying he doesn't want the foreign ministry, he wants a finance ministry. Now, that actually might make it more difficult to have the coalition because his analysis of what happened and what went wrong with the coalition between the CDU and the Free Democrats last time, that was after the 2009 election, was that the Free Democrats fought that election about tax and then they didn't ask for the finance ministry so that the whole thing fell apart because they couldn't deliver on any of the election promises that they'd made. So he doesn't want to repeat that mistake. Now, I think that makes sense from that party's point of view, but it actually might make it very difficult, not least if, given who the present finance minister is. Yeah, I was is. going to say, I don't know much about German politics, yeah. but I know that Schaubler has enormous power. And he's not expendable, is he, to strike a deal? I don't think he is expendable, but he clearly has very, very different views than Merkel about how to deal with various Eurozone matters. Remember that he wanted to expel Greece from the Eurozone. He had a, the coalition of finance ministers you know, lined up to do that. And Merkel, this is in 2015, and Merkel effectively vetoed it. They don't have a, a good relationship. Now, I think it, it would be difficult, but at the same time that the Free Democrats provide some kind of cover because they also want to be very tough about the Eurozone. They would also happily throw Greece out of out of the single currency. And there is a kind of British solution. When you have a problematic minister like that, you make them foreign secretary, naming no names. And But I presumably, presumably Schaubler wouldn't accept that. No swap, say you have strong views about Europe, have the foreign office. No, all I would say is I think the situation, given what happened after the May elections in Schleswig-Holstein, is more fluid than it was and more open to this coalition than it was at the beginning of the year. So it's centrist, it's complicated. Is there a basic division in German politics that's analogous to some of the divisions that we see in other countries? I mean, we, we have a sense often with democracies that you're looking for where's the fault line is it north south is it urban rural is it the educated the people who haven't been to university whatever seen from the outside especially given where the support for these two more fringe parties comes from both of them i think is it still west east is there still a big division between the old west germany and voters who would have once been in the old east germany who are now more attracted to the non-centre parties? Well, this is a, the, the kind of $60,000 question in German politics. Uh, and the answer really is all of the above. All of the divisions you mentioned are still alive and kicking. The most important factor determining German political choice-making traditionally was religion. The best way to predict how people would respond and which parties they were likely to choose or not to choose was uh, the question of whether they were Catholic or Protestant. And that goes way back. That goes way back to the period of the old German Empire, back to the 19th century. So, And this has been established through really painstaking cephalogical analysis of uh, electoral data and so on. So that divide is now weakening. And one of the reasons for that is, for example, if you look at Bavaria, the church has come out very critical of the CSU, the very right-wing sort of conservative Bavarian, dominant Bavarian party. The church has been very critical of that party's position on refugees, saying it's inhumane and uh, non-inclusive. So that alliance between the, the church and a certain array of conservative parties is starting to fray. And that criticism hasn't dissuaded their traditional supporters from continuing to back them? Well, whether it's going to have any effect on the traditional support structure of the CSU is yet to be seen. This, this, so it's a kind of test case in a way, whether a that, case, yeah. the church still has a hold. And that's one reason why the CSU is so nervous about this election, despite the fact that you know they, they will remain the dominant party in Bavaria. They're, they are concerned about losing ground. But the issue of the big division, I mean, 
the east-west divide is, is still very, very important. It's important, among other things, because there still exists something called the Solidaritätszuschlag, which is a kind of tax, a lump sum, which is paid to the east to support eastern economic development. And increasingly, people in poor regions in the west are saying, how come those guys, you know, those people get all this money? And you look at places like, you know, Schwerin and so on, which are, or Jena, which are flourishing, new centers of high-tech industry and so on. And you've got places like, you know, Duisburg, Marx Law in, in North Rhine-Westphalia, which are, uh, look like a you know, devastated wasteland. So why are they getting all the money and, uh, and not us? And the people who are saying that, are they the supporters of the AFD? In they, the West. they include AFD supporters. Because Die Linke is, is still thought of in Germany as a kind of offshoot of what was once the left. The in old East, East German, German PDS, Com- yeah. exactly, absolutely. So you wouldn't be, trying to work it out in my own head, so you wouldn't be one of those disgruntled Westerners seeing this transfer of wealth to the East. That wouldn't make you vote Die Linke because they are the party of the East German workers. You would vote AFD. You might, right? well, but you might well vote AFD. I mean, I know AFD. it's not as simple as that, but that's roughly how it would go. Well, you might well vote AFD, but, you know, uh, p- politicians of many parties, are now, including of the SPD and so on, are making a f- starting to make a fuss about this. It's become a regional issue, which has absorbed politicians across the across the spectrum into this discourse. You know, people recognize that there was a need for this sort of asymmetrical funding in the immediate aftermath of the of the unification. But they think now that that's run out. And there's another set of payments called the Länderfinanzausgleich, which is payments between the different states, where the Western states basically make contributions to the eastern states. And the SPD and other parties are now proposing that that be changed as well. And you simply have a kind of, you know, system where the richer states help out the poorer states, because not all the states in the east these days are that poor. I just want to go back, if we can, to the question about the the centrism of um, German politics, because I think there's another way of looking at it, and that is to say the reason why it's possible for 80% of, of Germans to identify as centrist is because over a long period of time, their government delivers pretty much centrist policies, both in terms of Germany's relative economic success. I mean, it had difficulties in the 90s, particularly the second half of the 90s and the first part of the 2000s. But since then, its economy, you know, has probably got the best record of any Western economy. I mean, I mean, not necessarily in terms of growth, but certainly in terms of its export performance. And that is important because it has been historically the basis of post-war German economic growth. But it also just has, I think the best way of describing it is safety valves for dealing with the kinds of issues that have caused problems in other West European politics. And particularly, that is true in relation to the EU. So if you take the issue of monetary integration, although it had the potential, clearly when uh, AFD first came on the scene, which began life not as a party which was engaging with the refugee question, but it was a party that was engaging with the euro and what the ECB was doing, is to say, look, the German Constitutional Court can actually put some limits on what the monetary response of the ECB is. It can't overrule what the ECB does, but every time that Merkel wanted to do something and every time the ECB made a new move, then effectively it had to wait for the German Constitutional Court to say it was okay. And that means that a situation in which you can make an argument like British Eurosceptics can that says essentially that European law triumphs over British law and that's a fundamental constitutional problem. That argument can't really work in Germany. So are you saying to bring it back to us, not that we're obsessed with our own politics, that in the British case, had there been some kind of constitutional equivalent, Brexit would not have had the momentum that it did as a 
something that in the end would have to be resolved by a referendum. Yeah, I do think that's the case. I think that if you look at the history of Britain's constitutional relationship with the EC, as it then was when Britain joined, and the difficulties that were caused by the means of accession, and the fact that then a referendum had to be effectively held retrospectively to legitimate that, and then the difficulties that were caused after Blair called for the referendum on the constitutional treaty that he then didn't have to hold because the French and the and the Dutch said no to it, but that did not then lead to Gordon Brown holding a, a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. I think that is a very important part of the story that leads to Brexit. And I think the other point I would say, going back to the Germany and again the parallel, is is if you look at the issue that was causing Merkel so much problems in 2015, the second half of 2015 and 2016, it was refugees and migrants. And that was when the AFD kind of turned from being essentially a sort of anti-Euro party to being a party that was trying to mobilise about the refugee uh, issue. And Merkel's response to that was to completely ditch the first policy that she'd started with. And she was able to do that because Germany, having the position it does within the EU, she was able to negotiate an agreement, a bilateral agreement effectively with Erdogan in order to stop the refugees and migrants coming at least in the same scale as they had been earlier on. So you might say that German policy, because of its Germany's position in the EU, can still do error correction. Merkel did something that she then came to regret and was able to change policy and to respond effectively to German domestic opinion about that. But that isn't an option that other EU governments have in dealing with the problems. I mean, Cameron, for instance, was not able, because of the nature of freedom of movement rules that are enshrined in the EU treaties, was not able to do any error correction. When the rise in migration from southern Europe into into Britain fueled the rise of UKIP. He didn't have that option. Merkel has options that others don't have. On this podcast, I'm always wanting to learn. And I, that does help me understand what's going on. But then it raises two other questions. So I'm going to come back, one for Chris and one from what Helen said. So there's another pair of divisions here that maybe there isn't quite an analogy in the UK or maybe in some other European context. So one, Chris, is the one that you mentioned in Bavaria, there is a separate party which is nonetheless always traditionally allied with the CDU, which is the CSU. And actually in the London Review of Books this week, there's an article about German politics, um, which makes this point that it may be that the CSU, because it is further to the right on many issues, including on immigration, than the CDU provides some cover against the AFD, as well there's a sort of I don't know if this is the right way to put it, this would be the British version, a nastier version, slightly, which allows Merkel both to appeal to the centrists, I'm not like them, but also there's a little bit of possible dog whistle politics available there. And that a lot of the AFD support is actually coming from people who might traditionally have voted Social Democrat. First of all, there's a historical question. What is that relationship? There's, there is no British analogy. The closest I could think of would have been when the Tory party had a kind of Northern Irish wing which was not actually part of the Conservative Party. It was a separate party, and nonetheless, they were joined together. But in, in almost every respect, that's different. It's not like this. Mm. What is the relationship between the CSU and the CDU? Well, it is a bizarre relationship. It's As you say, it's um, become just a fixture in German politics. It's, since 1949, these two parties have always... It's taken um, for granted. It's ta- been taken for granted. They have an inf- it's informal, incidentally. They have an informal alliance by which the CDU agrees not to put forward candidates in Bavaria and the CSU not, agrees not to put forward candidates anywhere but in, in Bavaria. So they've sort of divided up the territory. But um, it's a difficult alliance. It's often been difficult, and it's particularly difficult at the moment. It's difficult because the C- CSU is, on questions of identity and culture, to the right, far to the right 
the of the CDU on on issues of social policy. It's actually slightly the other way around, but we'll, we can come to that. And this division over issues like immigration, for example, refugees, the refugee crisis, has widened in the last couple of years. It widened perilously in 2015 when Angela Merkel made the famous decision to open Germany's borders to, to thousands of refugees in entering Eastern Europe, Hungary in particular. And uh, she tried to do this in agreement with Seehofer, the, the minister-president of Bavaria. She tried to contact him and get his agreement um, to this decision, but he couldn't be tracked down. He was in Germany, but nobody knew where. Nobody was willing to uh, to speak to him. In other words, he wasn't willing to speak to anyone. So he withdrew himself from this decision-making process and has since claimed that this decision was made without him, without consulting his party, and that the CSU feels unbound by this extraordinary decision, which they see also as a breach of German law. There's a lot of accusations against Merkel along the lines that she's now running what Seehofer calls uh, a Herrschaft des Unrechts, a dominion of lawlessness, having to do with the sort of high-handed decision-making that, uh, of, of 2015. So that's become a kind of bone of contention between them. That's one thing that's divided them. And she's pulled the party, her own party, you know, into the middle as well. She's, you know, she's dropped uh, national military service. She's allowed a process to take place which led to the approval of gay marriage. She sort of modernized the CDU. And in doing that, she's, you know, she's pulled at the, at the strings that connect the CDU to the more conservative CSU. But does it therefore follow that the division is the threat for her, but it's, could it also be useful in the sense that when people vote CDU, they know that this further to the right party will be there as part of the deal, possibly tugging back the other way. It does give that cover on the right. Is that plausible? From the CDU's perspective, yes. From the CSU's perspective, no. Because what the CSU is worried about is that they've been pulled by their alliance with the CDU too far into the centre, leaving their right flank exposed. So they're the ones who are now exposed to the AFD. Exactly. And, you know, there's a sort of folkloric figure in the history of the CSU, a man called Franz Josef Strauss, a sort of, you know, fleshy... um, I can picture him. I remember him from my childhood. (laughs) Exactly. A sort of, you know, stamping, stomping, beer drinking... He was the sort of October 1st... Absolutely. The ultimate Bavarian politician. And Franz Josef Strauss was famous for saying, to my right, there can be no constitutional party in German politics. The CSU was part of its identity was that there is nothing to the right of us. We extend all the way to the edge of the world. And after that, it's a cliff and you just drop off. Well, that's no longer the case. There is something to the right of the CSU. And this has never been the case in German politics. Well, there have been parties to the right, the, the so-called Republikaner and various other sort of neo-Nazi splinter units and so on. But now we have a, quite a, a serious political formation forming to the right of the CSU, which almost certainly will get into the Bundestag, the national parliament. So that's a new development, to have a party to the right of the CSU. So these are ways in which that view of Germany, that while there's chaos everywhere else, it's this sort of beacon of stability, but it's not quite, is it? Because that clearly is a bit more like what's going on in other European countries, or even in the United States. Oh, it is. I mean, if you, if you brought Strauss back from the dead and showed him this, he'd say, Things have really changed. It's interesting that idea of bringing Strauss back from the dead because that's exactly what the AFD, the, this right-wing party, have tried to do. They've published a huge poster. It's one of the most interesting posters of the current electoral cam- election campaign uh, on which you see the immense sort of face of Strauss and, and behind him the sort of blue and white checkers of the checks of the, of the Bavarian flag. And underneath is the, is the legend, 
Franz Josef Strauss would have voted AFD. Right. Now, now and the dead can't sue. So. Strauss's family are furious, but they're not going to sue. They think it's unlikely to be successful. But, you know, it's a very sore point. It touches a nerve with the CSU. It kind of would have been like Farage putting out a poster of Margaret Thatcher and saying, exactly. had she lived, she would have been one of us. Absolutely. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Helen, the other question that I had was about Turkey, because, again, there are two forces at work here. Erdogan's relationship with Merkel has been very important. But Erdogan, because he's so furious about Merkel, as he saw it interfering in his referendum by preventing Turkish politicians from campaigning in Germany, is encouraging a boycott of Turkish Germans in this election. And that could damage the SPD, because many of those Turkish Germans would vote for social democratic parties. On the other hand, the rise of the AFD would encourage many Turkish Germans to vote because to sit out this election is dangerous. And that's another, again, I'm not sure there's a sort of UK equivalent to this. I mean, there may be in other parts of Europe. How important is that fault line, that fault line not between Germans and, as it were, Turkish Germans, but within the Turkish German community? I think it is, but I think that it is important, but I think that there's a bigger issue at stake here, and that is is the future of both German-Turkish relations and Turkish-EU relations, because if we go back to what I was saying before, then basically Merkel dealt with her political problem by reaching this agreement, which opened up the prospect again, or the possibility at least of sometime in the future Turkey joining the European Union. Well, it's very clear from things that Merkel has said during this election that that is no longer an option and that the essential agreement that her and Erdogan brokered between them has broken down. I mean, they've basically completely fallen out. Yeah, so actually Merkel's fix for her domestic political problem around the refugee and the migrant crisis has gone. But what is striking about it is is actually that the opposition, and I mean here not the SPD, who don't really disagree with Merkel about how to deal with that problem, but the other opposition, not least... AFD haven't been able to make more of that issue of the effective breakdown of German-Turkish relations because actually if that doesn't go back together again then all the problems that Merkel had back in 2015-16 they will come back and it's not clear what Merkel's next move if you like is to try to deal with that. But that's one of her skills as a politician it's never clear what her next move is. It is, is she, she deals with, with short-term improvisation that has so far for the most part paid off not least I think because she does have the capacity for error correction as I was saying earlier but this is a much more difficult question than it was first time round. I must say I think Erdogan's efforts to use the Turks in Germany as political biomass both to instrumentalise them in Turkish politics and to instrumentalise them in German politics is outrageous and completely runs against any idea of you know state sovereignty. Extraordinary thing to do. He's an extraordinary man. He's an extraordinary figure. Chris, w- one more question to kind of clarify this fascinating election. We've been talking about the AFD. We haven't really said who they are. I mean, we've sort of <coughs> suggested that they are to the right of what was currently there before. Their leadership is unusual for a start, isn't it? 
Well, they have a strange, particularly eccentric leadership situation at the moment because they have a, a sort of official leader whose name is Frau Petri, a woman, a highly educated professional, very articulate, very eloquent, as many of their leaders are, in fact, many of their leading personalities. But at the most recent party congress, she made a plea to the party to sort of, you know, move back to more moderate positions, to reconcile itself with the sort of moderate positions of the these 80% of, of, of centrists we've been talking about. But the party kind of howled her down. It paid no attention at all to her recommendations and elected as its foremost candidates, its Spitzenkandidaten, as they're called, two quite different figures, Alexander Gauland and uh, Alice Weidel, both of whom are far are far more extreme than Frau Petri. And Alexander Gauland has, of course, may, uh, recently been notorious for having recommended that a very senior functionary of the SPD, a woman called um, Aidan Özüyüz, should be, as he put it, he, uh, I have to cite the German, entsorgt nach Anatolien, that she should be waste extracted back to Anatolia. That's like George Osborne and Theresa May, almost. It's absolutely extraordinary language to, to find in the public sphere of a place like Germany with such strong memories of, of that sort of language from the Nazi period and so on. And the fact of, is, of course, that she's a German. She was born in Germany, born in Hamburg. Um, her parents were born in Turkey. That's why she has that name. You know, it's it's grotesque. So these, these are people with a very repugnant political outlook. But since, just to talk about the timing of this, since the party rejected the push to move back towards the moderate centre and embraced the extreme, that more or less coincides with a moderate uptick in their fortunes, doesn't it? In that the AFD were in the doldrums a little, and maybe at that point it looked like we're going nowhere unless we move back close to the centre. And actually, they've sort of put their money on capturing that 10%, which is theirs if they go the other way. Well, they have, because they've realised that this is the key to burning the candle at both ends. And this is the, the mystery behind their success, is that they're eating away both at the support for Die Linke, the people on the far left, and to the people on the far left, they're saying, why are you in such misery and poverty? It's because, you know, foreigners are being dumped on your communities, and they're making your lives more insecure, more crime-ridden, and so on. And on the right, they're saying, you know, where is the CSU? The CSU is supposed to be protecting you against these floods of immigrants, and here are we, we're the ones who are really going to stand up for your rights as Germans to live in a German community. So they're hitting the left and the right at the same time. I mean, it's very, very narrow, one-issue politics, but uh, for the moment it's working. One last question about Germany, which is the thing that we keep coming back to, the question of Europe, and the relation between Germany and France is the key, it always has been, and it will continue to be for the time being, particularly as Brexit unfolds. I think it is the case, certainly reading about it in the British press, that Brexit has been a non-issue in this campaign. It didn't come up in the debate between Merkel and Schultz. It's barely discussed at all. It may be that it's not of any particular interest to Germans, but France and Macron are, and there is a lot of waiting for after this election to see if there's the possibility of a new French-German alliance, possibly post-Brexit, which will save the EU. Helen, I know you're going to be sceptical. I don't think it's that so much. I think the first question is, is like from Macron's point of view, is, is what coalition is going to emerge? What government? Because it, And this could take a long time. As I understand it, it's highly unlikely that there will be a coalition formed before the state election in Lower Saxony, which is next month. Some people are saying that there won't be a coalition, a formal agreement reached until Christmas, whatever we're, formation that we're talking about. Now, from Macron's point of view, it absolutely has to be the continuation of the present coalition, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, the Grand Coalition, because if the Free Democrats are in 
this coalition, they have made it very clear, their leader, Christian Lindner, has made it very clear he's not interested in Macron's agenda. In fact, he has red lines and they would involve absolutely no acceptance of a Eurozone budget and no acceptance of any proposal that would involve essentially sharing of fiscal or banking liabilities between France and Germany. Now, you might say people talk the language of red lines and then they make agreements, quite possibly so, but the Free Democrats under Christian Lindner are not going to be Macron's friend, even though in some ways the way that the Free Democrats have been talking about the fault lines in the German economy, Lindner at one point described the German economic situation as a prosperity hallucination i.e. that it's on false pretenses that is going to come unravelling over the next decade or so. It has got something in common with Macron's position about the need to reform the French economy. The Free Democrats are saying we need to reform the German economy essentially to catch up with the digital age and to move away from such reliance on exports of the car sector in particular. But on EU matters and in particular on Eurozone matters, there is no common ground at all between Macron and the Free Democrats. So Jamaica is going to be bad for France? Jamaica is going to be difficult. One interesting feature of the of the Macron-Germany relationship at the moment is that it, it, it's said that Macron has come up with a kind of a, a 10 or a 12-point program for Europe, but he's not yet unveiled this program because he wants to wait until the coalition is in place. Is this true, do you think? Well, yesterday the Financial Times was reporting a different story. It was reporting that he set out what he wants because he wants... He wants it to be taken into account in the coalition discussions. Now, I find this like astonishing. I mean, it's just kind of like almost as astonishing as when Macron's saying he wants to be, you know, the Roman god Jupiter. The idea that Macron can exercise some kind of veto over who's going to be in the the German coalition or the substance of the agreement that seems to me to be absurd. But, but clearly, doesn't, it, doesn't really... it make sense though in an integrating Europe that the the countries would seek to shape each other's policies in this way? It is, but I mean, I think that that just fundamentally, from Macron's point of view, misunderstands how the way the EU works. You think is, it's is, hubris? It's hubris. I mean, is is that Germany might get to have some say about other countries' domestic politics mm. in the EU, but other countries don't get to have a say about German domestic politics. And that's, I think, going back to this issue of the fact that the German constitutional court has ex- essentially asserted this right to say that what happens in the EU has to be compatible with German basic law. So so to ask the the blunt question, you don't believe it's possible, it sort of goes back to the point about whether thinking about what coalition would be formed, whether the possibility that the AFD would become the official opposition would be a barrier to what might otherwise be a desirable coalition. Would it not be taken into account that forming a coalition with the FPD might be a barrier to coming to an understanding with Macron? So, OK, Macron can't tell them what coalition to form, but would they not consider his point of view as one of the factors that would shape what was the most desirable outcome? I think if you put yourself in Merkel's shoes and she's thinking about what to do when it comes to coalition formation, it would be strange if the issue of French relations did not be part of her calculations. I still think, though, for Macron, as he seems to have done on Macron's advisers basically to sort of publicly say, this is France's position, please take it into account, is actually entirely counterproductive in terms of having influence over Merkel's position, because then it will look like Merkel is acquiescing to French demands. And that is a potential political weakness for her, which other parties, the Free Democrats and the AFD, will be able to exploit. Or the other way around, if she doesn't take account of his view, then he looks really, really weak. He does. Right, finally... And probably quite briefly, I got an email a couple of days ago from someone saying, looking forward to hearing 
your views about the forthcoming general elections, but I hope you won't forget the election that's happening in New Zealand the day before, which is also very important. All elections are very important for the countries where they're happening. This one is actually really interesting for lots of reasons. Chris, as an Australian who's an expert on Germany living in the UK, I'm going to ask Helen (laughs) to tell us about the New Zealand elections. I'm just going to ask a straight question. What's interesting for you about what's happening? And just to let people know, if people haven't read about this, it's been very dramatic. Jacinda Ardern, a young former Tony Blair advising politician, has become the leader of the centre party of the left in New Zealand and may end up as the leader of the country. And that's happened in seven weeks. And it's transformed the polling and it's transformed people's expectations. So when you look at New Zealand... What strikes you as really interesting about this election? I think when I looked into it is is that both her you know meteoric rise from this was a party that looked dead and buried, and that is why the previous party leader resigned and she ended up taking over to have turned a party around in such a short period of time, even in the political times in which we live. Yeah, it's not so rare these days. It's, Things happen seven, very quick in seven yeah. weeks. Yeah, that's I, quick. I think, that's quick. I think that the other thing that, that struck me about it is is if you look at the a manifesto on which she is running and that is is this is a centre-left party and she has positioned it such that it is campaigning for a significant reduction in immigration in terms of numbers and she is campaigning for what is effectively capital controls in relation to the housing market because New Zealand is one of those economies where basically the housing market there is a bubble in it and that is in, being driven by Chinese capital flows in particular it's happened in Canada as as well as in um, New Zealand it's made housing in New Zealand extremely expensive happening in Australia too I presume. yes it's happening in Australia too and that she is saying that we can't allow this situation to continue so effectively you have a party of the centre left that is embraced let's call it at least moderate economic nationalism some might say it's stronger than moderate and is doing well out of it and I think there is a parallel with what happened with Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party post-Brexit I mean is, is it does look that actually that it was Brexit that allowed a wider Labour coalition to be put back together again that allowed Labour to get back to 40% plus in a general election here and then you have another party of the centre-left that has embraced some at least form of economic nationalism that is now prospering under that. And then you look at what's happening at centre-left parties, including obviously the Social Democrats in, in Germany at the moment, where they're bound in more by the status quo, and they do very badly. Now, there may be some coincidences there. I'm not trying to say that there's a necessarily a no, cause You're of not religion. saying because New Zealand is not part of the European yeah. Union, that's why the left is no, reviving. I'm saying is, is that the centre-left seems to have opportunities when it questions some of the things that centre-left parties have accepted in relation to economic life over the last 20 years. And I think if she does manage to lead the New Zealand Labour Party to victory on Saturday, which is possible, as you say, then it should be at least in part analysed in those terms. I mean, I think it should also probably be analysed in terms of leadership because she does seem to be a rather charismatic and able leader. Seen from the outside, the other thing that looks striking and it's comparable to the UK is that there are lots of other parties in New Zealand too, but they're getting squeezed. And the two main parties are now running roughly where the two main parties are running here at about 40%. It's the story, it's the 80-20 rule, which used to be the rule of politics and then seemed to be fracturing all over the place as these minor parties were clawing. But under certain circumstances, being Germany, being outside of the EU, I mean, maybe had something to do with 
that freedom of manoeuvre that I comes think, with that. I that do think it is. You get the 80-20. The question is, is that one of the things I think that's happened over the last 20 years or so is, is that nominally centrist parties ended up pursuing what, by any historical standards, were extreme policies. And then voters ended up drifting And by extreme, you mean... Primarily in economic, financial in terms. In economic and financial terms, yeah. And if you look at it by historical standards, so things that parties would not have done 30, 40 years ago, they were and signing just to remind up our listeners what you mean by that. I mean, for example, is is that by historical standards, I'm not making any evaluative judgment here, but simply saying looking at the past, is a, is a situation in which you have a, a labour union, as you do in the EU, between 28 states, as Britain's still in the European Union, is by historical standards... An extreme policy. You will not find historical precedents for it. And so maybe unprecedented rather than extreme. Okay, <laughs> but I think that what I'm trying to say though is is that if, because the parties then the voters defect to get labelled extreme. I'm just using this sort of centre extreme position. So the parties defect in their policies from the centre ground. The voters defect from the centre parties. But when the centre parties do things that are by historical standards more like the things that they used to be able to do, the voters come back. And after that, that return to two-party politics, one of the ways it's described in the UK context is as a return to the 1970s. And I don't know if that's true in New Zealand, but it may at least have some echoes of what used to be, as you would put it, more mainstream politics. So Chris, as a final thought, let's come back to Germany. Not saying that New Zealand doesn't matter, it is really interesting. But what's your parting thought before the weekend when we will discover that Mrs Merkel is once again Chancellor? Well, I think there's something weird about this election campaign. If you are in Germany and you look at the posters, it feels very low energy. You know, the... the As C- Donald Trump yeah. would say. C- the CDU poster, the, the captions are, are things like, you know, for good work and good wages. You know, it should be easier for families with children. Support those who are strong for us. It's very low energy, very relaxed, but there's a huge amount at stake and everybody knows that. And the outcome, this is really an election worth watching. The big question is who is going to occupy position number three? The two big parties, it's obviously going to be CDU, SPD, but who's going to lead the quartet of splinter parties? If the AFD is at the front, a far far right party, then we're looking at a new situation in German politics. And we're going to be living with that for the next four years. Thank you very much to Chris and Helen. Chris, we're going to get you back because we want to talk about this some more when we know the results and before Christmas when we know what the next government will be. The article I referred to in the LRB is by Thomas Meany. You can find it on the LRB website. And if you're interested in subscribing to the London Review of Books, if you go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, and click on subscribe, you will find a very good offer there. Do please join us again next week when we are going to start talking once again about British politics because it's conference season and we'll be talking about Jeremy Corbyn. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Okie dokie. But, um, so you want us to be a bit perkier? Helen we, says what people like about this podcast. I said, we, what, we some, sound I said what some people like. Um, yeah. You need me to do a perky sign-off. Okay. So, that so thank you very much to Chris Clark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And to Helen Thompson. This, yeah. Is this perky enough for <laughs> you? <laughs> yeah, all right. Let's go. Okay. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. 
And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim. All made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.